0: This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: My guest today is Tina Hay. Tina is currently building Station.express a new blockchain-based labor marketplace. We discuss Tina's personal journey as an online contributor, what drives her passion for creating a new future for work, and how Station.Express is differentiating itself from Web2 platforms. When I first spoke to Tina, I walked away incredibly impressed at her enthusiasm around this specific problem, and I think you will too. Please enjoy my conversation with Tina. Tina, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I thought an interesting place to start would be to rewind back in your past when you were 14 years old, writing a blog in China about education and how the Chinese handle that part of their system.
2: Totally. I was in middle school, like other middle schoolers in China, passionate about writing and passionate about literature. And growing up, I was lucky enough to have the resources to be American literature and European literature, Russian, just had a pretty wide discourse of narratives that are not represented necessarily in the core curriculum of a day-to-day Chinese classroom. So I started to write about a lot of these things, especially around the breadth of subjects that are covered and this whole idea of standardizing everybody's curriculum across nation and how that could stifle innovation and creativity. As a naive (laughs) and young middle schooler, I started to write about these topics pretty frequently online and capture some attention from both my teachers, which wasn't great because I got into a lot of trouble as a middle schooler (laughs) writing about these things. They would tell me and be like, you know, your writing was too on edge, tone it down a little bit, but it's actually quite well received, I think, across the internet. So I think Ever since I was quite young, I've always loved the power of being able to connect with people with similar ideas on the internet, always being warned that there is a chance of being censored. And that's actually when I started to realize a future where I can freely write what I want might not be a viable path here. That's actually why I decided to go abroad and came to the U.S. afterwards when I was 14. When you
1: were writing, were you anonymous? Were you Tina? How well known was it that it was you behind the blog?
2: I don't think it was well known at all. It was mostly my like kind of pseudonym. I do have my face on the blog, but I don't think most people know that who my true identity is. I think the blog back then got honestly millions of views, which was quite meaningful back then. And there's a publisher that we actually signed a book deal of talking about my journey from writing online all the way to decided to go to America because that was a very rare thing to do for someone at that age from where I came from. And I decided not to do it because I just thought I didn't want that to be the entirety of my identity is surrounding, you know, that is almost like an exit from a path that's predetermined, but really be known for something else that I in the future will create. But Honestly, now thinking back, should have written the book, <laughs> but it's okay. It's not too late. Maybe I'll do that sometime in the future.
1: Getting to know you, I have no doubt that there's going to be a series of books that you're going to publish someday. I'd be curious, what was your vision of America coming here, what you were looking to build? How did your career develop to get you to the point today?
2: There's this small class of people who all have similar background as I do. So we came to the U.S. for boarding school and then very competitively wanting to go to a very good university, and then usually work in industries like tech or finance, or some of them would just go back to China and start their company there. But this circle of people is extremely small. And I think many of them embody both the entrepreneurial spirit of what America is all about, and what attracted many of us to go there, which is about the freedom of speech, the freedom of ideas, and not having any red tape about what is possible, which is a very enabling thing. And then there's another camp, which is trying to play and optimize the game among ourselves. As an immigrant, I think this is resonant for so many of my other friends who have similar background as we do, but from other nations, is that you sometimes represent this role model or someone with that unrealistic expectation that your home country is almost like expecting you to come back and contribute back to that, their native innovation, especially around technology. And both phenomena, I'm observing very, very closely. And I think back to your question about what I was expecting when I came to America, it was like a wide-eyed excitement of what American dream and ideals really embody. But throughout more than a decade of me being here and almost like spending half my life here now, versus China, was able to see on both sides what power really means for both cultures and actually being able to see the benefit of both is, I think, a very special thing. And we can talk about that later, but I think the nuanced view of being able to understand the benefit of a more top-down management system versus a more bottoms-up democracy like America has also shaped the way that I even think about business and um, think about what we're building here in Web3.
1: I think it will be helpful to understand your experience in business. You've done a lot in a young career from technology venture capital. So how did going from a very elite program to some of the most competitive jobs shape how you think about work, hiring, talent, meritocracy?
2: I think that the hiring process of some of these potentially prestigious industries Sometimes there's this thing called a good heart law where once something becomes something to be gamed and once something became prestigious, it kind of lost its meaning in a way. But regardless, I was commenting on the phenomena of a lot of young people now wanting to get into venture very early in their career. But then I think for me, I was lucky enough where I got connected with really great mentors that actually pushed me to think and act like a more independent agent, directly interact with really great entrepreneurs and become actual friends with them, become peers with these people that I used to really look up to and have them by our side when both as an investor, as thought partners, and then now as a founder, a lot of them are supporters. I think that relationship is so valuable that what's really inspiring, again, tying back to Web3, is that that I think is much more accessible than the previous generation, which already is also, again, more accessible than the generation prior. In Web2, it was like a LinkedIn DM and a good cold email can get you so far in your career. In Web3, it's a Twitter DM and it's when you do great work. Sometimes people just come reach out to you rather than the other way around. The generation prior to that, it was a lot of these relationships all happened behind closed doors. So the reason why we're so bullish about Digital work and the new idea of meritocracy is because it actually makes the talent market a lot more liquid and makes a lot of the contribution that are happening online a lot more legible and a lot more identifiable and provable because the people who are really good at identifying digital talent and online talent have this very specific skill set to know whether the work that they've done is legitimate, although the current products or the current platforms are not really supportive of doing this at scale.
1: I'm excited to talk about the new company that you've launched recently. Before we jump into that, maybe some background on how does the blockchain help reputation? How does it change how we think about hiring employees or trying to get a job?
2: There's so many different schools of thought when it comes to reputation. So in traditional like Web2 marketplaces, we think about reputation in the contained type of model or market where there's this, Consensus or consensual standard of what is great and what is good, what is bad, and that's how like art marketplaces like Airbnb and Uber design their reputation system. So a lot of it, in addition to enhancing good behaviors, there's also meaningful effort that's being done around preventing really, really terrible behavior. So those are verticalized marketplace reputation system that make transactions a lot more smoother by making. Transaction data more legible through the form of ratings. And then we also have back to the question around blockchain, where a lot of the data surrounding that unique identifier or assets or objects related to a wallet address becomes someone's inventory of identity. So I think in crypto right now, there's this idea where NFT is so much more than what you own, it's so much more than an asset. It's actually your unique identifier of which group that you belong to. So your association, what you've done, so your actions, your behaviors, and also based on how the metadata of those NFT is being designed. They also can provide very valuable information about your actions that's provable on chain. So what that means is in the blockchain system for wallets to be identified by certain platforms or another app, that is not native to Web2 companies, that's not native to the initial platform, then this idea of interoperability comes in where the reputation that you've built in one platform can now translate to the other because of the unique properties of being able to take your wallet address everywhere you go and being able to read your on-chain history. And based on the logic that platform wants to implement, you can basically check whether this history is actually legitimate.
1: What's a simple example or an analogy of how I could do work, take an action, and that could be stored in a way that we can't store today?
2: One simple example that we've used, for example, Mirror, it's like an on-chain blogging platform where you can write a blog post through your wallet. And after you publish the blog post, if you want to go to another DAB or another address, let's say I just want to spin on my own front end and I want to carry the data on-chain, there's an RWeave address that's tied to every single blog post and then that's tied to my account. I can basically query all those data through a subgraph and then render those data in my front end. So basically I can create a blog just curing the data from elsewhere. This is how like current APIs, the Web2 stack that we're familiar with. With Web3, that process just becomes much easier because there's no centralized control about who gets to carry those APIs or there's not as much gating around what type of data you can carry. Although some of these designs still have to be done by the subgraph designer themselves. But it's just much exciting when, especially in DeFi, right? Like there's so much data being generated right now in DeFi where you can basically read if this person has done whatever trade, if they have, you can calculate whether they have, they can calculate some type of risk scores based on type of loans that they've taken out and the type of collateral they've put in. And based on that, you can compute your own type of risk that make this user legible or not legible to do certain things within your own product. It's why people call Web3 like Lego blocks, where there's just so many building blocks where you can leverage data being generated from other platforms to gain access and permissions and unique feature sets within your own.
1: That's interesting. So in the first example, you have a writer, they're writing great content like you were in your teenage years, but it's on a website. And If you wanted to go launch on another website, you have to copy everything or download it and repost it. In this world, the idea is that the content it's stored in a format, in this case, Airweave, where you can connect to another third-party source in this case, but still have ownership rights. It's a really interesting way for creators to be able to own their own content. I think that's probably a nice jumping-off point of the vision behind Station. I think it's a really interesting business model. And The reason why I wanted to start with your background is as a writer-creator, you can tell that has been imbued into this. This isn't just another LinkedIn. So I think a good jumping off point would be to give people an understanding of what does Station do?
2: Station is trying to match the best contributors with the best projects across the web three ecosystem. What we believe is that some of the most interesting contributors are pseudonymous across the internet. They're super talented. But right now, Twitter is not doing the best job servicing their best work in order to actually onboard more people, both into crypto, but also into this era of digital work They need examples to learn from. And one of the biggest pain points that we've all experienced coming to Web3New is that who are the actual people that are doing real work in the space rather than shilling tokens on Twitter, being able to see what they've actually done and what does real work look like in the space. And that is something that is a huge piece of missing infrastructure, both from a reputational perspective where there's not real verifiable proof that someone has actually contributed to a project And also, just from a user experience perspective, it's very difficult to actually see someone, all their contributions and work in one place and the organization that they've been part of to have the context about this contributor.
1: I think we've experienced it where someone's reached out to me, said, I'm one of the founders of XYZ DAO. And then I'm like, you know, are there really 30 of them? And who are they? From station standpoint, there's the idea of authenticating that level of work and their contribution. So what's a good example today of how someone would be able to authenticate, this is the work I've done, this is who I am.
2: Our role is less so about authenticating all these different standards that are going to pop up across these platforms. That is an incredible, important role to play in the ecosystem. But we just think that the ray limit of creating those standards is almost limited by how many platforms emerge. So whenever the new platform emerges, we would want to integrate with them. That is a somewhat of a reactive and defensive position where we actually want to build a public infrastructure. that like anybody can leverage this to build their own DAO. So our target audience is actually DAOs that are still forming or want to just adapt a better, almost like a decentralized HR stack to manage their contributors or just completely new DAOs that's going to exist that might not even exist yet.
1: When I think about being a contributor, I think about today, you could have someone shows, they say, okay, Tina, hire me. I'm going to give you my resume, my cover letter. Here's some references. By and large, a lot of people can inflate that. They can say, I know something. And there's a difference. Like I think about a simple example. I know this computer language. That can mean a lot of things. That can mean I once saw it used. I used an editor versus I'm a hardcore person contributing to something like Stack Overflow. And here's my repo. With coders, there seems to be a bit better of an infrastructure to kind of understand them. But when I think about being a writer and I say, oh, Tina, I'm a writer, but I've never written before. I'm just, I'm doing my best to get that job. How does Station kind of help clear that block of, oh, no, Eric is really a good writer and he's written in in these different ways?
2: I think the elegance of some of the models or some of the mechanisms that we're designing is really around building a generalized enough of a reputation system where the social protocol or social oracle is actually curated by humans, rather than any algorithms that are measuring how many codes, how many lines of code you've committed, or how many blog posts you posted on Medium, and let's count that, that is just very easily gameable. So back to your example about writing a blog post and whether that's valuable. So of course, if you already have writing samples, you have written in the past around the internet and being able to aggregate that, that could be super valuable, but let's just say you've never done that before and this is your first time contributing, then the best way to actually start to build that application is by start contributing to a community by writing. And then once you write that piece, someone in the community can vouch for you and say that, wow, Eric is a great writer. And that information is somewhat on-chain, but at the same time, without compromising your privacy anybody can just read the message of like, oh, someone has endorsed you or vouched for you for doing certain things. What we really trying to do is to build this peer-to-peer endorsement system where irregardless of the work you do or the type of the work you do, what matters is who actually vouched for you for the work you do. And we want to give the context behind that on-chain interactions of like, why is Tina's wallet address giving Eric 20 endorsement tokens? It's because Eric has written the, really great blog post, And that is a verifiable resume entry that is actually granular enough rather than just a role at an organization.
1: I'm thinking about things like LinkedIn. There's like endorsements or other platforms where it can be a popularity contest or there's just a lot of noise. And to your point, it's very gamifiable. So what are you doing to try to prevent this from just being gamified popularity contest?
2: Our philosophy is that when resources are limited, there's going to be inevitable allocation optimization. What that means is that say this community just rewards people who are the most popular or the loudest and everyone decided to endorse that person because they're the most popular. What they realized is that a week later, this person actually didn't do any work for the community. So they basically, given that they only have limited amount of endorsements to give out, they basically wasted their resources on somebody who didn't really add that much value to the community. So if we think about social capital these days, on Twitter, if you see someone following, let's say, 10,000 people, you will know that their follow mean a little less than someone else's follow, maybe like 50 people, but they're all super high quality, then you can tell that the list has been curated and has been thought out. But we put a token on top of that just to make that economic decision even more legible.
1: And so in this case, a DAO comes to you and says, we're looking to hire, do they use their own tokens or are they using Station's general token?
2: They're using their token within the Station context. So Station is going to mint this endorsement token for them. It's an ERC-20 token. Um, You can think of them as their reputation within the Station ecosystem or when they use our protocol. But these data, they can take it elsewhere too if they want to recognize this as a valid data point to prove that. Let's say in this community, someone has given Eric 100 tokens. And that means Eric is eligible to actually claim 20 value token, which is their native token by the end of the month, because of the way that a lot of these Web3 stack has been designed, doing that becomes a lot easier.
1: So is it the idea that because it's on the top of my mind, this Friends with Benefits, they have their own token, I could exchange my station tokens to get actual Friends with Benefit tokens for doing work for them?
2: Totally. If that's the way that they want to implement it, but that's not just the only way.
1: I think the way to think about this is you're trying to create a labor marketplace for Web3 creators where the different people who would have different demands, some of these jobs you said aren't necessarily here today. For simple ones, developers, moderators, writers, creative types, they could come and say, okay, I want to do that job. And then in exchange for doing that job, they can be compensated like they would for their normal gig work. But when it's over, there's some sort of scarcity of tokens that the endorsers could give to them to say like, I don't have unlimited of these things, but I'm really happy with the job you did, Tina. Here's 10 of these tokens. Is that fair?
2: Totally, yeah.
1: So what are the different structures that the hiring side could create to incentivize to get this type of talent?
2: I think the form of endorsement itself Because one is like on chain, and actually does incur not just an opportunity cost, I could spend this token on someone else, but also a real gas cost. So it actually the friction does demand some type of intentionality on the people who are hiring. And back to your other question, which is what's the relationship like? And what are some other relationships between the endorsement token and potential payment? That's a really good question. So at some point in our roadmap, we do want to implement payment. But right now, we just want to see the flexibility of this social token system and seeing how it evolves and play with other systems. And the use case is actually extremely versatile because you can do things like, based on how many endorsements that you received, you can be qualified potentially for a different types of roles. And based on that role, you can have different tiers of payment. So one common example of that is if you're a full-time contributor for a DAO or a part-time contributor or someone who comes in and out, Basically, as the community manager or maybe the group decides that based on the commitment levels, you have different salary tiers or you have different payment tiers. Basically, the endorsement is a signal for people to make decisions about which tier that you are part of, which makes the system much more dynamic. And also, you're collectively always getting feedback from the entire group versus just a few decision makers about how much someone should be getting paid.
1: I don't know if this is the right analogy, but is station informed like, if a DAO is a corporation, then stations is becoming the HR function. I know it's tough to make these like web two analogies, but I think about a DAO is a really weird way to manage people. There isn't just a hierarchy. I'm in charge. Everyone follows me. And now we need to find a way of like, okay, our DAO has resources. We want to spend them on people. In a corporation, we have a hiring manager. They'd post a job description. A bunch of people would flood them with resumes. They would pick the person they wanted here Not only would that not work, you're dealing with pseudonymous people sometimes. You don't know who they are, what their skills were. So is Station really an HR function for DAOs?
2: That's a great way to put it. I think you can think of it as the HR function, but just think of this HR function as something that's connected. An HR database is just limited to that organization. But in the case of Station, we hope our infrastructure is connected. Almost it's like every single company's HR function is connected. And because of those history, we can create an emergent social network that's based on these working relationships across these organizations.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it, that if you were working for um, the Fidelity, and then you work for Goldman Sachs, and then you work for Bank of America, you'd have three distinct histories of managers, people writing about you, reviews, rating scores, they're using different systems, different people, and, and no one would ever see that entire context. What you end up seeing is a resume that says, I worked here, I was great, I worked here, I was great, I worked here, I was great. So how do you think about normalizing that, that different DAOs are going to have different needs? They're going to think about rating people differently. Is every DAO going to be able to create its own economic and rating system? Or is there kind of a universal first principles that everyone will apply to so you can somehow normalize, okay, you did this work over here, you did that work over here, that equals a single score?
2: We believe that any singular scoring system is overly reductionist someone's reputation is as quantitative as it is qualitative. So if we have this reputation locally of a community, that informs potentially your relative standing compared to others because of the peer-to-peer mechanism. It's all about given this initial distribution of resources after when you allocate to one another, what that distribution looks like in the end. And that should, if the system is designed well, reflect the value that each of these contributors actually brought to the system. So what matters is actually your relative standing within a given community and the actual work that you did, which we contextualized through our product. So, okay, Eric, a really amazing blog post. I'm going to give him some appreciation. You've been a great leader. And then maybe someone else, even different work stream decided to endorse you and basically showcase that you've garnered support and recognition from many, many different nodes and edges within the network. And that actually shows a diversity of your network within that ecosystem or within that community that makes you a very important in the network. And that data to me, as someone who's just seeing you for the first time is much more important than like, let's say you aggregate score across these communities And there's this calculation that goes behind it because that is very hard, as you mentioned. Every community has different value systems to measure what that actually means. What matters more is your actual contribution within each of these communities and potentially these communities' own reputation within the system, which I think is much more emergent and consensual, where you just know whether some communities are more legitimate than the others based on the work that they've produced
1: And I want to just drill down there of subjective versus objective decision-making. When you think about task-based work, you're hiring Uber drivers. Did the Uber driver show up? Did they drive safely? It seems to be like that was reduced down to good job, bad job. And people use a rating system of their experience, which helps give the algorithm more data. In this case, especially where you're pushing into the creator economy, you're getting into kind of the most subjective. Some of our friends that write these amazing blogs on Substack or Mirror, and ranking them is a challenge. How does Station solve the voting on subjectivity component of rating people?
2: Something that we care so much about here is that one of the missions that we have is to diversify the definition of success. Every single community has their own value system, and they value work differently. So you can succeed, Eric asked this, you just write one article a day. And then people love that because they just love the volume of work that you're creating so that everybody just endorses you for that behavior. But that behavior might actually not land well in another community where they actually value potentially really long pieces, while research that get created once a month. If you write every single day, no one endorsed you. And then maybe you would develop self-awareness and be like, huh, like, you know, no one actually recognized me for the work I do. And I'm working so hard. Then there's a mismatch of the value I'm creating and the value that's being recognized in this community. One beauty and one elegance that we've been really contemplating about how we design our peer-to-peer mechanism is how well we are able to service that delta so that when we have conversations with our own contributors, we're able to see that there's some surprises here where it seems that you're doing a lot of work, but people are not really recognizing you. Is it because maybe you're not vocalizing your work enough, or maybe it's because The work that you're creating is not the highest priority project at the moment, but really delivering that with compassion and empathy as well. I think it's as much a soft skill where, you know, it happens outside of the product as much as the product itself, which captures these data, trying to render a high fidelity image of someone's contribution.
1: Let's stick with that example. So I'm the writer and I'm on station and I'm writing for DAO A and I'm writing every day and they're giving me 10 tokens. Are they giving me 10 station tokens? Are they giving me 10 of their tokens? What are they giving me?
2: We have an endorsement token that is an ERC-20, a very generalized that every DAO can create within station. And that is a representation of basically how you can think of the value that someone thinks that you've brought in. If a DAO decided that that itself is sufficient to decide your payment, 20 endorsement token equals 20 native token. That's completely fine. But we don't want to be like, prescriptive about that. So we design our contracts and design our product in a way that every piece is modular. So it depends on the algorithm or the calculation that you want to do as a DAO, where maybe that accumulation of reputation or endorsement tokens can just lead you to being promoted to the next tier of roles or give you permissions and assets to products or to content or to documents or to different experiences that you otherwise would not have as a reward rather than purely tied to your compensation.
1: Starting a business like this is one of the challenges getting creators to the application and say, hey, I'm going to produce on here. Or is the first thing getting the DAOs, the actual hiring folks that want to use their creative talent to come and start recognizing their own people or to look for new talent?
2: I think it's a little bit of both, but mostly the latter, where organizations want to use this to recognize and onboard people that a lot of times already are in their community, but we call them like the potential energy of their communities that are not yet converted into productive energy to actually uphold and create work. And also being able to track who actually has done what within the organization so that they can retroactively reward them. All those data, honestly, can reinforce and enrich the contributor's identity to make that richer. The longer you stay in the community and doing more work, your resume kind of get auto-generated because you've done these things that you can showcase that you've actually done it.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things that I think about, one of the worst jobs, but I'm most impressed with it, is Discord, which is this messaging system. There's this role moderator where you're basically the babysitter for a chat room and people lose their mind or they get upset. And usually you're the person who takes the brunt of everything. There's some people that are amazing at it. And I can imagine how a DAO is like, well, how do we compensate this person? What do we give them? They deserve, they're a vibrant and important Role for everyone. And you could imagine something like that. Like, if you're a moderator for one, that's a transferable skill to other groups. I see all these new projects, and it's one of the first simple jobs people are looking for is like, can we have a list of moderators just to help communicate this rapid dispersion of information? In that example, you would have a moderator, they would come to you and say, This is what I want to do. Is the word hire the right word for this? Or are they not really hiring it? They're just kind of letting the moderator build their resume to get future jobs.
2: They're helping them build a resume to either be a part of their community and they're also helping them get future jobs as well, which we believe that it sounds a little counterintuitive and it was a concern that we got where it's like, oh, if we're helping this contributor enhance their identity, other people just take them. There's this competitive dynamic. But we believe that because of the way that one is at the stage of the web three market and the other is the future of work where actually a lot of this knowledge around building organizations, building products can be translated across a lot of organizations. And there's actually this, the sum is bigger than the parts dynamic where people can compound knowledge across these different ecosystems and go back to the people that they want to serve and they want to hang out with to bring that value back.
1: So I think a nice spot would be Stations are a really exciting startup. you guys are trying some exciting things in the Web three space to kind of be this bridge between the creator economy and these new Web three job opportunities. In your mind, I would love to hear how, when Stations at its full form in your mind, what does it look like? What are the jobs that are created? What does the world look like in the future if this all comes to be?
2: We really hope that with better coordination mechanism and making these coordination mechanism and reputation building mechanism and a fair credit attribution model, we're able to incentivize more collaboration to happen beyond borders, beyond physical constraints. And that's actually what drives everything we do here is that we hope that filmmakers around the world can come together, people that want to accomplish certain goals together um, can come together to form a new age nonprofit that mobilizes capital and human capital in a very different way. We hope to see teachers come together and form decentralized schools. They're producing content and can share potentially the community endowment and allocate those resources together as a collective and really skip a lot of these inefficiencies that are imposed by corporations that act as this intermediary to reduce transaction costs. When in the end, it actually hinders the real productivity that can happen across borders. The end goal is to make what's happening in crypto and DeFi. And what we see are these like kind of miraculous feats of coordination accessible to more industries and more people around the world.
1: Yeah. I want to go back to when you were talking about the global market. You've mentioned this before that most companies, they start with a US launch and then they go global later. And that's not how this works. And also, I'd love you to touch on how pseudonymous, this is like an anonymous name but it becomes something so i had an anon account i called it Rourke, and that was just what i hid behind for a while to figure out this world so how does pseudonymity and a global landscape impact the future of work
2: i think this is one of the most controversial thing that my friends and i debate a lot about and a lot of founder and myself also talk a lot about is if let's say this digital first work and it's already obvious in crypto where talent and skills and Twitter as this idea marketplace becomes more efficient? Are we entering a world where the best and the superstars will be recognized around the world? And then if you're not the best at what you do in some way, it's just a much tougher world for you because of that market mechanism. I think there's definitely that concern. But our hope is that because of also a better matching algorithm and better matching mechanism, and being able to create more economic opportunities that are more fluid. We're also able to service the long tail of jobs that didn't exist today to enable more people's geniuses. So success is not so singular as like you have to be the best engineer or you have to be the best hedge fund trader analyst. We already see in crypto that because of the dynamics that I just described, some of the best analysts and participants in the space are, you know, 90 year old from Cambodia. That's totally possible. And it's super, super cool to see that. But then like back to the thing that we talked about, and then we connected about creator economy and these long tail jobs is that, you know, in the future, teachers, content writers, as you mentioned, people that are great at building very, very special relationships with other people, people that, you know, used to be maybe coaches, therapists, just all these diversity of professions can now slowly find their place in this new market and this new city. And every era we call that there's this center of economic opportunities that cities become labor markets. Silicon Valley, great example for the past decade. And the next one, I believe many, many thought leaders in Web3 already talked about this is around like this idea of a cloud city. You're actually enabling a new market to exist from almost nothing to now be able to mobilize all kinds of economic opportunities and transactions within this one place. And that means it's a place for so many different people to create an actual diverse ecosystem that's resilient, where many new jobs will be created on a global scale.
1: So let's move on to the pseudonymity part of it. The fact that you can kind of have this name, this avatar, but nobody actually knows who you are. How does that help or hurt the creator economy?
2: I think that's too early to tell, to be honest, but the sense that I think, generally, pseudonymity in the long term would make, again, the market more efficient in the way that more people get to participate in the economy that otherwise they might not be because of their identity and their constraint. So it actually gives people some type of safe space to really express themselves without potential, otherwise, red tapes or things that they couldn't do But the downside of that is because the nature of pseudonymity, that it's very hard to actually understand whether this pseudonym represents individual identity or many identities at the same time. So there's pseudonymous accounts that I've interacted with that have three to five people behind them, and that becomes a lot more challenging. But to be honest, it's like a Pandora's box where because of how more efficient and more versatile such identity is in the online world, I think people will continue to adopt this form of expression when it just gives them much wider range of things that they're able to do. And it also gives people much wider range of simultaneously the opportunity that they can take on. So you're not just one person, you can be five people doing five different jobs around the internet.
1: Yeah, I think that we first touched on this topic. You had some really good points on the negative sides. Like I wasn't aware at first, I was more naive. I was doing it on my own. I'm like, these anonymous accounts are just really good at producing content. They're funny every time. And then you explain to me, there's like 15 people, writers, producers, they're a lot bigger than you might think. But I think that the exciting part is something I think Balaji talked about. Of You can imagine, and we're seeing examples of this, to your point of a really young person in a country that is war-torn or a place that is not going to get a job at an American corporation very easily without getting here in the first place, being able to contribute and potentially have a job online without ever knowing it. You've had these stories where, whether it's a game for a lot of money or a developer or a trader, and you find out it's a 19-year-old on the other side of the world, and English isn't their first language, that's doing this amazing skill. And I just think of the power of it to me is so much more hopeful than the negative that you could hire someone who has that skill set, never having met them or judging them by the school or any other things that you might have a bias on why we should hire them or not. And so something that is exciting about what you're doing with Station is empowering that person to have a level playing ground. I just think that's an extremely exciting idea.
2: Thank you. Yeah, we're inspired by these 19-year-old anons every day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Tina, just to wrap up, Ask you our final question. What are you most excited about seeing built or building yourself over the next six months and six years?
2: I feel like my answer to both questions would be the same. There's a short term version of that manifesting on the product level for Station, and there's a longer term answer to that as well. So the shorter term answer is that we really try to activate any community member, their truest power of becoming. Leaders and curators of other contributors, where people are more proactively taking a role of knowing that their actions and how they view other people and how they work with other people have an influence on someone else's reputation and their relative standing. And we're in some way all playing the part of enriching each other's profile and history in this new way of working together. So it's a very empowering thing that we're doing. And in the next six months, we hope that more communities can be adopting this reputation system to empower their contributors more so that this ecosystem is no longer just pay to earn, but it's also participate and to work to earn, which is a more natural and sustainable economy. And back to your question about the next six years, really, it's about there's so much speculative excitement and capital inflowing into this market where without the ability to really converting these speculative interests into productive work for contributors to really push that boundary and to unite people across these different environments, the world, and also across these communities from music to fashion to art to tech to talk to each other, then the kind of vision that we really envision will not be upheld just by thinking about them. But really, we need more builders and we need the infrastructure support builders to work better together.
1: That's great. Tina, thank you for your time today. I'm looking forward to seeing all the stuff you build and reading that book someday.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com.